Hello, I'm Noah, your host, and this is The In-Between Project. I am very pleased to welcome my guest today, Professor Erica Preston-Roder. Professor Erica Preston-Roder teaches in the philosophy department at Occidental College in Los Angeles. Her primary focus is in applied ethics and the application of philosophical thought to topics such as race, gender, public policy, and social morality. Her published journal, journal articles have examined relevant topics such as the psychology of grief and recovery and racial cognition and the ethics of implicit bias. I'm especially excited to talk to her about her upcoming research on the dynamics in multiracial families and the unique identity formation that takes place for multiracial children. So hi, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Hi, Nella. I'm Hello. doing great. I'm very excited. It's the end of the semester here at my college, Occidental, and looking forward to a wonderful winter break. Yes, me too. I just finished finals, <laughs> so I'm in the same boat. Um, very excited to have you on today. I, I wanted to open with a, a question I'm posing at the beginning for all guests um, that I feel like really frames this podcast, this show. And the question is, what does home mean to you? Is it a specific place, a group of people, a feeling? Yeah, so if you could just kind of. So first I have to say, I love this question because I think so often when I think about race, um, especially among multiracial families, I feel like the issue of um, home is central. So race can be thought of as this political construct about who we affiliate with, who we identify with, lots of work about you know political parties. Um, but I also think that, especially right now, for me as a parent with young children, I also think about racial identity as um, part of what my children feel safe with. Um, and so I think this question of home, this sort of race as a sort of personal sense of who you are and where you feel at home is something that I've been sort of struggling to articulate to myself in my own work and also to position that next to these more political notions of race, which all which is another way that race functions. So I love that you start with this question, like what is home? What is it to feel at home? What is it to be at home? I mean, for me, um, home is definitely the people, right? They And those people do make me feel a certain way sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they make me feel challenged and frustrated, but they also do bring a kind of safety. Um, I belong to them and they belong to me. And because of that belongingness, whether it's there because of blood or whether it's there in my like high school friends who I've known for 20 years, there's no way that I won't belong to them and won't in a certain sense be accepted into them and be safe with them. So that's what home means to me. Um, and then I think I loved that this question came up at the very top of this podcast because I think often when people are grappling with their racial identities, they're trying to find in a certain sense where their home is racially speaking um, and what 
who's the group of people who's going to give me that safety in a sort of right. more communal sense. Right. Yeah. And I, I definitely agree with the notion of like home is a sense of belonging. It's not always, you know, you might not feel at home in your, in technically like a racial category, but you might feel at home in the family that is different, you know, races, multiracial family. And I think that that's what matters at least for children growing up in multiracial families first, you know, before they have to kind of start, um, you know, coming to terms with, okay, I might not fit perfectly in a box or a category of race. And I think for a lot of multiracial children and individuals, finding a home in the world might not always be so easy, but finding a home at least before you're forced to choose, you know, between these categories of race, um, that's important. So, um, yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, I think of a couple, that makes me think of a couple things. So first it makes me think of sort of sociological literature that suggests that, um, okay, so some multiracial people uh, grow up in families with only one parent. They mm -hmm. might have just often, so they might have like, might be um, multiracial because their mother is black and their father is white, but they grow up with just their the black side of their family. And in those kinds of cases, people are much more likely to just sort of straightforwardly identify as black, right? Mm -hmm. That is like all the people around them who have made them feel at home from a very young age are black. And um, it, I think it makes sort of intuitive sense that of course there would be um, that that would be an identity that would fit, would feel right. And not mm -hmm. always, right? People are complicated and multiracial people are complicated. So not always, but certainly statistically, you're more likely to identify um, just as Black if you've ra been raised in a family just with the Black side of your family. There's empirical evidence that those early experiences influence how multiracial people self-identify as they get older, right? It gets more complicated in teenage years. Like, um, so really interesting questions about like, if you're the only black white kid in your high school or one of just a few and everyone else is white, how will you identify? And it's, it actually sort of goes both ways. Like in, when you look at people's narratives, they'll sometimes say, you know, they sometimes end up identifying as black in partly as a response to feeling like an outsider, but they'll sometimes identify as multiracial, partly as a bridge to their other, and they'll explain it partly as bridging to their other peers. So it gets much more complicated in those later years, because as I think you really correctly identified in the, that um, kids go through this process of first identifying very strongly with their families and then their peer groups become more important in t as teenagers and then they shift in college if they go to college to a totally different set of peer groups so that's another opportunity where one sort of racial identity goes into flux and I think sort of at each of those points you see self-reexamination from multiracial um, people as they figure out <laughs> how they want to self-identify and what feels natural to them. Right, right. And I'm, I'm really happy you brought up the different stages of development for identity and, you know, how it starts very in your, your close, tight-knit family or the people you're raised around, um, and also the people you're socialized with. I feel like that 
plays a big role for people who can't really, you know, who do have a multiracial identity, yet might be socialized with only one race or a lot of people from different kinds of backgrounds. And, you know, then that informs their sense of identity and belonging. Um, but then once you get maybe to college or just in the workforce or a different, you know, environment from where you came from, um, that can totally, you have to reevaluate completely again, you know, where do I fit or what is my, you know, what does my background mean to other people? And yeah, I think if you could uh, touch a little bit on that um, in terms of the need to kind of bounce off other people where you belong. Let me rephrase this. Like what happens when a multiracial person needs kind of like that validation from other people to kind of validate their identity or their race because the world is very much about categories and boxes. And if you don't fit, this is personal experience of mine that I come from two backgrounds, which is African-American, Black, and uh, Chilean. And I feel like with in both groups, you know, I kind of look to 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 the group to to constantly say like I am part of you but I also know I'm not I don't have the same experiences and because of that like you know it's kind of like you have to look outside of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it is hard to sustain a racial identity for oneself if you are not accepted as that by others, right? So we um in multiracial people, some very a small percentage of multiracial people, something like 5% of black, white, multiracial people identify as white and not as black. Um, and they are often challenged by others about this, right? Um, and they will say it's very hard to sustain to say, you know, I am white when you're not accepted by as white at all. Um, Less commonly, we may see the same thing happen for someone who's black, white, multiracial, perhaps fairly light skin and declares themselves as black and they might be not accepted as black. And so, and again, it's hard to sustain that identity. It's really damaging. <laughs> um, right. And we, I see this in um, autobiographies of different multiracial people. It's, it's really traumatic and damaging to declare I'm black and then be told you're not. Um, that this is a part of racial identity that people who are monoracial don't think so much about. They don't think about the fact that being black or white or biracial um, involves a kind of affirmation from other people of, of being accepted as such, and that it's very hard to maintain a racial identity when you are not accepted in that way by other people. It's possible. It's possible to keep declaring it. Um, but it's difficult. And I don't know, right. do you know that the author Mariah P.P. Root, have you read any of her stuff? I have not. I will now. Yeah. Yeah. So you should look her up. She, let me look it up right now. I'll declare, I'll look it up. She has um, this thing called the, the Bill of Rights for People of Mixed Race Heritage. She wrote it in oh, wow. a long, awesome yeah, it's title. amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's from 1993 and 94. It's so long ago. And she was a psychologist who worked with multiracial individuals. And so she wrote, um, so I'm going to read part of this to you. I'll just read you the whole thing. So this is the Bill of Rights for People of Mixed Heritage by Mariah P.P. Root. 
And it starts, I have the right not to justify my existence in this world, not to keep the races separate within me, not to justify my ethnic legitimacy, not to be responsible for people's discomfort with my physical or ethnic ambiguity. And it continues, I have the right to identify myself differently than strangers expect me to identify, to identify myself differently than how my parents identify me, to identify myself differently than my brothers and sisters, to identify myself differently in different situations. And she concludes, wow. I have the right to create a vocabulary to communicate about being multiracial or multiethnic, to change my identity over my lifetime and more than once, to have loyalties and identification with more than one group of people, to freely choose whom I befriend and love. So this is amazing, right? Like this is it's so much of the mm -hmm. like what I see in the autobiographies of multiracial people, the things they struggle with, like mm -hmm. to have strangers expect one thing and for you to be something else for right. what it means when your brother or your sister identifies as one thing, but you don't identify that way. Um, to feel like you have to justify yourself to other people about how you identify racially, um, even though you look a certain way or don't speak a certain language. Um, right you know, to, to have your own way of speaking and thinking about this stuff. So I, I really like her sort of, yeah, it's an amazing piece and just thinking about it, but Mariah PP roots, her, her vision is not mainstream at all. <laughs> like not yeah. mainstream at all. No, um, I mean, as you were reading that, I just, it felt like so affirming, you know, I felt it in my body, but especially it feels like a reclamation or just kind of, yeah, a reclamation of self and identity on on the multiracial person's own terms, you know, instead of, because so much of identity, I think, relies on an external source of validation, right? It's kind of like, no, actually, this is my, this, I know my own experience, right? And mm -hmm. I know what I feel comfortable identifying as, or what my upbringing was, or the people I do feel I belong with, and the people I I don't feel like I belong to. And that is completely the multiracial person's right to say that. That was, yeah, that was incredible because yeah. like we were saying, you know, so much of it comes from monoracial people kind of categorizing, understanding is that person and us or them, you know, and, and it's, it's to be multiracial means to be in the nuance, to be in the in-between and still be able to, you know, claim this is who I am. And this is also who I am. And, uh, you know, that might not make sense or kind of seem logical to someone else, but this is my experience, you know, and I, I have to claim it the way it is and the way it's been. Yeah, we, we talked last time about this thing that's come up in my own work about um, power and who owns these words, like who owns racial signifiers, like black right. or white. But I do think that we should recognize the possibility the possibility that there is a kind of what we call epistemic oppression involved where, mm -hmm. um, where some people are lacking power in deciding mm -hmm. how these words get used. And 
multiracial people have experiences that could bear on how we categorize people as black or white or right. Asian or Chinese, and but that their experiences are pushed to the side and not allowed to inform mainstream opinions about how those words are used and that they're pushed to the side because they're multiracial, because if right. you're multiracial, you couldn't possibly really know. Yeah, I exactly this point is where I'm a little conflicted um, because mm -hmm. I agree with you. And I know personally, like from my personal experience that I, I've been in that situation, right? Where I feel like my blackness is not valid um, but at the same time, like from a monoracial and, and I, 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 I like the term monoracial, but I also think it's interesting because I know like deep down race is just not this inherent real category, obviously. So it's like everybody is mixed in some way. And even if you are what we call, I mean, if you're monoracially black, for example, well, no, I mean, ethnically you have so much mix inside you and probably a lot of mix mixes because of the history of slavery in this country too. Um, but it, it, there is definitely a, a, a presentation of blackness that is not, you can't like pass as non-black, right? And that's where I think as multiracial black people might have that privilege of not presenting to the world the way in which racism categorizes blackness and what blackness looks like, what blackness acts like, you know, um, and this is where it's like, in, again, I'm speaking from my perspective, but uh, I feel like in my experience in the black community, it's kind of like, because I have the privilege of being racially ambiguous or of not having had maybe black experiences that are, that are framed by injustice or framed by a socio economic system that keeps black people down or framed by let's say systemic violence racism housing injustice food injustice right like there's a system obviously at play here but then not all black people are in, in the same socioeconomic statics and not all black people have the same experiences growing up um so i don't know if it's even just a thing between you know monoracial black people and multiracial black people i think even within the black community i think there's even so much nuance and and difference. And, you know, I really like the saying that black people, we are not monolith, you know? And so, but how do we come to terms with like, exactly back to the point of like, who gets to claim the black experience or who gets to claim it more? What does that look like? What does that really mean? And I think for multiracial black people, this is probably a point of frustration and confusion because in my from my stance, I don't want to take up space in the way of like centering my story when I maybe there's a different kind of black story that needs to have a voice right now. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's interesting. So I, so I was going to say, look, the earlier point I was making about the oppression of multiracial voices is about allowing multiracial people the same sort of prima facie legitimacy to claim their um, racial identity as anyone else and not dismissing their claim as on the basis that you're multiracial. So you can't really know what blackness is like they have just as much of a claim, but not dominant. So now we have mm -hmm. all these sort of 
voices at equal footing, the mm -hmm. like monoracial black voices of all classes and all like heights and all colors and the multiracial voices. And, and now Noah, you're saying this, now there's this family conversation that's happening within the black community that you feel a little sidelined from personally, you're wondering how much space you get to use up. Um, and it's about, well, okay, so what does count as being black? Like, I think multiracial people totally have the black cultural ties. I think the uh, the sticky point is the one you started with, <laughs> which is when you are, when you don't appear black, when you can pass, and so you're not subject to discrimination. And so, the question is, does that make your racial identity less legitimate? Um, and I think it certainly means you are lacking an important dimension of a racial identity. I think in many of these cases, when people pass, it is overly simplistic to say that they pass entirely. So some examples, right? So people from history have passed as white, but they also lived in fear of being discovered to be quote unquote, truly black. So they were passing, but they were still subject to fear. Um, even in this era, like people who pass as white um, are subject to a whole bunch of other fears, like, um, you know, that they have cousins and aunts and uncles who are being subject to discrimination and that they are like, you know, feeling a sense of immediate loss and threat. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a fantastic essay, and maybe I can try to find it and send it to you later, but um, about, oh, about the experience of being a black, white, multiracial um, artist who's passing as white in a certain space, not on purpose, mm -hmm. um, and then being having to listen to you know people making derogatory remarks about black people in front of you in a way that is terrifying, right? And as is terrifying and heart wrench, like ripping, like rips you in two, makes you face these choices of betraying yourself or putting yourself at risk, right? Um, discrimination um, takes many forms for Black people and that the kind of discrimination that multiracial Black people encounter and the kind of racist harms they encounter are different and less serious in many cases, because they don't come with du direct threat of violence anymore, but still awful. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I wanted to ask, like, have you been having, like, have you been having these conversations with your kids yet? Or because I know you yourself are in a multiracial family. Um, and I was just curious about the dynamic in your family. Are your kids kind of aware they come from a multiracial family yet or not. You know, I, for me growing up, like it was totally normal that I had one parent who was black and one parent who was Latino. And, you know, that was just like how it was until of course you go out and you're socialized with peers and slowly you start to kind of accumulate <laughs> basically the knowledge of like, oh, I'm not like everybody else. But, right. you know, has that happened yet? Um, what has been your experience also kind of raising uh, multiracial kids. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, my children are nine and six and especially with the pandemic, they're a little bit sheltered this year. Um, and so they know that they have a black dad and a white mom and they, um, 
and we tell them that they're multiracial. Um, so we sort of told them what their identity is at this point. And I, I don't see any way around that. There was a part of me that didn't want to tell them what their racial identity is, um, but I think they needed a word to describe themselves. Um, but they don't have a sense of themselves as exceptional in any way yet, right? So they, um, there's a couple of reasons for this. First, young kids are just really focused on themselves and their families. So they're not really old enough to be doing a lot of comparisons with their peer groups yet. Second, we live in Los Angeles. So my daughter's best friends, my daughter being the older one, are both in multiracial white Asian families, right? So when we start to talk about it, it's actually a little hard to come up with examples. Like, it's hard to explain to her that actually is kind of uncommon. Um, there were very amusing early stages. Like, um, I remember trying to explain to my daughter at like age four that you can't always tell if someone's black or white just by looking at them. Cause I felt mm -hmm. like this was an important thing to explain to a multiracial kid that being black or white has to do with how you feel on the inside, not just what you look like on the outside. And then mm -hmm. we went to the zoo she saw some black birds and she's like, mommy, those birds look black, but you can't really tell whether they're black or white. <laughs> like you look at the insides. Aww. And I was like, mm -hmm. honey. <laughs> that really was a big parenting fail. Right. <laughs> um, so I decided that four was too early to try to explain what race is. And um gave it up for a little while. Um, so we have an ongoing conversation in our family about about race, um, but I think they're really still trying to um, even wrap their heads around, um, just trying to wrap their heads around race, a little bit trying to wrap their heads around racism. And they're not really aware that being multiracial is anything special or different. Mm -hmm. um, I shouldn't say they're not really aware because actually they are aware that it's special. Like that's mm -hmm. the term we've told them it's special. So we've talked to them about the loving family and um, which was the family yes. that in the U.S. established the um, right for the abolished the anti-black white miscegenation laws. So, um, you know, my kids were blown away by the fact that, you know, 50 years ago, their mommy and daddy couldn't get married. That would be mm -hmm. against the law. That's, that's crazy right. to them. Yeah. Um, and it really <laughs> makes racism very present when you can put it in those terms. Um, so they very much understand that there were racist laws. They're having a harder time wrapping their heads around the idea that the world is still racist, right? They keep mm -hmm. saying things like, well, it isn't like that now, right? And that's the conversation we're, we're working on right now is trying right. to explain that it is still like that now, just different. Yeah, so I, I think I think at this age, <laughs> their identity is very much rooted in their family. Mm -hmm. We told them they've got a little bit of mom in them, a little bit of dad in them, that we're a sort of special kind of family because we have this. And that's enough for them. And right, I think it's right. later on when they start to make those peer groups that that's when they're going to have to really grapple more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... I don't, and I personally believe for nobody, race should be like at the forefront of like who you are, right? I think mm -hmm. that's kind of just the consequence of the society we live in because, you know, if you're a person of color, if you're someone who is not white, 
you know, you're constantly kind of from the external world, there's constantly just affirmations of like, this is what you are, this is what you are, or, you know, you're easily grouped or easily, but I don't think for any, any child or anyone that like your race and like, this is the race I am and where I, you know, what my race is like, according to whatever stereotype, like that shouldn't be at the forefront of your identity, right? You are you first, the unique you and like the things you like and what makes you happy and, you know, what you share with, you know, your friends or in your family. Um, and so, you know, that makes me happy to know like, yeah, like you've had to have conversations with them, but like slowly because I antis- anticipating, right, that the world will start to ask at some point, ask them, well, what are you? Who are you? Right. Because as a multiracial person, multiracial kid, you might not be so easily placed. Um, And when that question starts getting repeated over and over again, um, then I think that's when it's like, okay, let me try to figure out myself now. Let me try to categorize myself. And then that I think is when all the confusion and, and kind of, or just knowing that you're, you know, and you're exceptional in some way starts to kind of formant and kind of be internalized, you know, but um, that makes me happy. I mean, that was the same way for me. You know, I didn't really, I didn't have this kind of question or like, you know, this part of my identity is kind of new in a way, I would say from like adolescence on, like trying to like understand, okay, well, let me figure out all the ways that I could place myself and not place myself and where do I fit? How does it work? And not really ever getting an answer. So I could never really give a clear answer to the people when they asked me, but I, I think we should be valued first for who we are um, and valued for what we want to present to the world. Right. So just because of the way of our culture is designed and set up, it's like everything needs to be placed. Everyone needs to be placed. And I think also that historically it's been seen as a well like even today I feel like it's seen as a privilege to not be like racially assigned or categorized um to be like racially ambiguous or to not like to kind of swim between races or decide like you know I don't want to identify as this um I think that's been is seen as a privilege because that's like how white people have always kind of operated is not being racial anything they're just they just right? Like the person with a race is the person that's not white. Um, But to be white means to not have a race. You're just kind of considered the default in this country. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Let me say a couple things in response. So the last thing you were just talking about is this idea of not having a race, which is so Mm -hmm. controversial these days, Mm -hmm. right? It's sort of Mm -hmm. as a reputation of, um, I I feel like when people say, you know, someone says, oh, I don't have a race it seems like such a short jump from that to, and I believe that racism isn't real, right? Which is, um, mm-hmm. so I, I think there's a lot of crit- criticism of this not having race, plus the connection to whiteness as you articulating. Um, mm-hmm. But I was reading the work of this, um, there's a sociologist who's been really influential in my thinking. And, you know, it is not uncommon for multiracial people to express um, that they don't have a race. So mm-hmm. um, for among black, white, multiracial people, he, they're basically, she, her name's Kellyanne Rockamore, and she identified four ways that black, white, multiracial people identify. Um, one is as black, um, 
five ways, sorry. One is as black, one is as um, white, one is as biracial. Um, another one is as um, uh, no race, right? Mm -hmm. Not having a race. And a fifth one is as different races in different places at different times. So mm -hmm. like, well, I'm black when I'm with my black family, but I'm white when I'm hanging out with the white kids. And like, I just totally feel black when I'm with my having Thanksgiving dinner with my black family. And I just totally feel white, like one of the white kids when I'm hanging out with the white guys. And that's just sort of this chameleon effect, right? right. And so that was sort of the self-construction. But you were talking about this idea of sort of not being raced of like, I feel like I don't have a race. I feel like I'm not um, a part of any racial group. There are a couple, I think that this can go in a couple different ways. So mm -hmm. um, it might be, <laughs> there's, there certainly can be, in some ways it seems like it could be literally true for some people, right? Like if you're, um, you know, like, if there aren't a lot of other people with your background, then there seems to be in some sense, it seems to be literally true that you don't have a race. Like you don't mm -hmm. have a racial group. Like at least some philosophers and some theorists would say that a race, you know, for there to be a race, there has the, there has to be a word for that group of people that's in common mm -hmm. usage. It's commonly understood. People apply it to you routinely. And if there is no such word and there isn't some such group of people, maybe there are people who just don't have races. Um, and that's obviously a very different sense in which when a white person says, I don't feel like I have a race, like mm -hmm. <laughs> they, that's not what they mean. Right. Like they, they mm -hmm. mean it's, it's, it's two very different senses. Um, so yeah, maybe there are some people who don't have races. Like they, there's no, like, um, they don't fall into any category because a category hasn't been made for them yet. Um, you know, and maybe that's tragic because having a race can give you another point of being at home, particularly in a society where, and, and also leaves you with nothing to say when people are trying to put you in the box. Maybe it's right. freeing because you get to self-create and you present other parts of yourself first. Um, I think it depends on your personality, how you see it. And I think it goes sort of goes back to like the root bill of rights that we were reading earlier. Like, you know, you can change your identity over your lifetime <laughs> more than once. Mm -hmm. um, you can create a vocabulary. Like that, uh, I think for people who fall in this group where there is, maybe they there is no racial identifier, which applies unambiguously to them. That's the sort of empirical fact. There's no racial identifier, which applies unambiguously to me. Like that's a fact about mm -hmm. language. And then mm -hmm. there's the normative question of what do you make out of that? So then how do I right. live in light of that? Right. And as a philosopher, that's where my question comes in, right? Which is, okay, how do I live <laughs> if there is no racial identifier which applies to me? And as I've been trying to say here, how do I live? You can live, like, there are a lot of different ways you can live in that space, right? It can be a place of creativity. It can be a place of tragedy. It sort of depends what you make out of it at that point. Right. Um, and I think we would do multiracial people a huge disservice to be like, oh, it tr must be tragic if you don't have a racial mm -hmm. identifier that applies, or you must be missing something central in your life. Like, I think it depends what a person makes out of it. And we right. should yeah. acknowledge the sort of 
I guess this is kind of existentialist reading, like give people the power to act on this sort of empirical fact in the way that they see fit. Right. And I'm on the optimistic side where I see it becoming like that, that feeling of like not having a, a race or not, or, or not feeling like, like feeling you're caught in between. Right. I feel like that's becoming more and more common. And because of that, if everybody, if you have all these individuals now who feel caught in between some way between race, then that's in a way like a new way to identify is with each other. Even if you don't have the same racial background um, or the same mix or the same family dynamic, I feel like this is just a kind of, this is what's going to happen, you know, as also more interracial couplings are happening yeah, as mixed race or multiracial people have children with other mixed race, multiracial people, yeah. you know, like it's slowly, I feel like as this, as our society kind of goes in this direction, there will need to be new vocabulary. And if more people have this experience, then it kind of, I think the vocabulary, the very categorical vocabulary that has been frustrating for multiracial people will not be as relevant anymore. And you know, I feel like in my generation, slowly starting to see it, but I can only imagine like two, three generations after me, um, you know, what is that going to look like? How are we going to, and do we need to categorize race anymore? Do we need to, uh, does that need to be a signifier anymore? And that's kind of the future I'm hopeful for. So the signifiers and the way we order things are always changing. You know, they're never fixed. And I think that might be a little frustrating for identity politics, right? Because you're trying to understand a fixed identity, right? Or we want it to be fixed. But really, with time, all identities morph. It has a lot to do with historical context, obviously. So not saying at all that identities are not valid as they are right now, because they are based on the systems of power in this country and the, and the history but as that history, as we move on in time and the history changes and more people with these these kinds of experiences are living and saying, no, this is who I am, you know, that is going to become a new way to to feel a sense of belonging and identify. I see that in a way, like the way it could be tragic too, um, which is right now in this moment, not feeling at home, not feeling like you have a people um, but I think there's a lot to look forward to also with the future of being multiracial. And if if being multiracial is even going to be a way to identify anymore, because if everyone's going to become multiracial, then it's kind of like, okay, this is not exceptional anymore. You know, this is not. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think there, there are two things that you said there that I would pull out. So one is like, can we identify as multiracial? Like person with a Chinese father and white mother identify as multiracial and, mm -hmm. and identify with the person with the black father and the Hispanic mother. Like, can they form an identity group? Um, and then, so one question is like, is multiracial a race or an identity? And the second question is, okay, as we have more and more multiracial people, what will that do to race talk in general? What will that do to racial politics in general? Will it make race less important? And will it, in particular, will it redress racism? So those are sort of two fascinating questions. Um, I am more pessimistic than you on both fronts. So I'll give you the pessimistic point of view. But I started right, out yes. being optimistic. I started out with this optimistic view and it's really 
through talking to my black husband, who's also a philosopher, that I've become more pessimistic over time. Um, so, uh, especially on the second question. Um, so the first question is like, is multiracial an identity? Is it a race? Um, and I am skeptical that it's a race or that it will be anytime soon. So I think a little bit like, um, I, I was moved to this position by reading uh, Linda Alcoff and, um, and other writers talking about the experience of mestizo identities in South America and Central America. And they made the case like that mestizo really is an identity. It has hundreds of years of history. It's widely recognized. It really has a core, rich center to it. And I think multiracial is just so young <laughs> that it doesn't have that core yet. We can kind of define it, but it it does, it's so young. And I think there's potential for some core to develop, like the experience of being exoticized by other people, being asked what you are, being told to choose. I think there are some like experiential components that could develop as a core, even though that takes very, those experiences do take very different forms for like the Chinese white, someone who's like has a Chinese father and a white mother versus someone who has a black father and a Hispanic mother, like uh, the, the ways in which they're exoticized will be very different. But I think it's possible that a core will develop over time. I want that core to be more than just the experience of being othered by the mainstream right. monoracial groups. Like I also think that's just would be kind of a thin core for an identity over time. And I think I also see this a little bit when I last year I brought together a couple of different multiracial students on campus at our college. And and the conversation was a little awkward. We we're talking about multiracial experience. And, and I think it was a little awkward in part because people didn't quite yet feel like there were um these that, that be, just being multiracial was enough to tie them together. So there have been some efforts in the U.S. to sort of create multiracial affinity groups, and they've struggled with these issues. Is there enough of a core there? And so I think it's both, is there enough of a core there, and is there enough history there for it to be its own racial group? And I don't know. Uh, I'm a little pessimistic about it at this point. Um, I should say that... Uh, maybe multiracial can become something that isn't a racial identity. Maybe it needs to be, we need to think of it as something else, like right, something that <laughs> shapes you or like, right, like something that right. is a recognizable, identifiable social category. At moments, it's an important part of who you are, but it's also like not as, doesn't, doesn't go as deep as our gender identities or our racial identities. It doesn't structure as much of what we are. So, so that's my thoughts about the future of multiracial as an identifier. The second question I thought you raised was, okay, so the future, like we have more and more multiracial families. We're having now what we call second generation multiracial families. So the children of like multiracial people are getting together and having babies and they have like really interest children with really interesting backgrounds too right mm -hmm. and um you know what does that mean is that as we have people who more and more people who fall outside the boundaries 
kind of reminds me of like an old sci-fi story from like the 1950s where, um, you know, at, at that point is, you know, it's hundreds of years in the future. And of course, everyone was kind of like a tanny brown color, right? Because the race, race, racial identifiers were just gone at that point. And so, you know, certainly hundreds of years of the future, like there is, it seems very unlikely that we could keep like visible signifiers of race separate. For the, for the more short term, one of the ways that I've become pessimistic through talking to my black husband is he is very much of the opinion that like anti-blackness will reassert itself. It mm -hmm. will find a way. Right, yeah. <laughs> so even like, like even if like there are more and more sort of multiracial or biracial or uncategorized or uncategorized people, however, these people, people or people who have identify with multiple races, like I've really been urging my children recently to identify as black and as multiracial. But mm -hmm. even as we have more and more um, multiracial people, um, that we will continue to mark off some people as less deserving, like we'll continue right. to other some people and that that pressure is not going to go that cultural pressure and material pressure is not going to disappear at any time soon. I just want to ask you, what do you see the future looking like then for multiracial people, multiracial children and families? And how does this how does this inform your upcoming research? Um, good questions. Well, let me say that I think right now is a really hard time to be multiracial. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, maybe this is, maybe if I was more of a historian, I wouldn't think this, but it seems to me that there is so much racial tension in the U.S. right now. Mm -hmm. And granted, there have been other times when there's been significant racial tension, but there's so much racial tension in the U.S. right now that I think it's tough on people who are multiracial because I think they feel more torn. Like there's just more of a sense of having to pick sides. That's my that's I think now is hard. <laughs> right. Um, I don't know if that resonates with you, but oh, yeah. my guess is that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think it now is probably really hard. Although there actually is not a lot of writing about that I've been able to find. Maybe you've been able to find, but I haven't found a lot of writing about what it is like to be multiracial right now in like the mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really extrapolating based on stuff that I've read about from authors reflecting on like five or 10 years ago. So, um, but what do I see the future for multiracial people to be? Um, I sort of feel like I talked about the, what do I see the future for multi, when we were talking about optimism and pessimism. So I don't yes. know how much I have to add to that. Um, yeah, I'll be really interested to see whether, um, what kinds of terms emerge for multiracial people over the next like 10 years, like biracial has gotten some play, mixed has been around, multiracial is a newer term. Mm -hmm. So I'll be really interested to see if, if we see a kind of um, a splitting of many different multiracial terms, right. like whether we're going to see development of like, identities around these very specific multiracial identities or whether we'll see 
or whether we won't see the emergence of these very specific terms, right? So um, I'm I'm interested, this gets at that question you and I were talking about, like, will multiracial as an identity, identity emerge? Like, will right. there be um, connections across people who have different kinds of heritages, but all have mixed or multiple heritages. So mm -hmm. I'll be really interested. That That's one thing I'm really interested to see in the next couple of years. The next thing that I want to think about is I want to think about Black, white, multiracial families, because that's mm -hmm. what I have. And um, in particular, I want to think about parenting obligations and parenting duties with respect to racial identity. So there has been some literature on, um, you know, what it is to be a Black mother um, and sort of what it is to like pass to one's child a sense mm -hmm. of Blackness. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been some really fascinating literature in the transracial adoption community so when white people started adopting black children, also Native American children, but in particular black children, um, maybe 15, 20 years ago, there was a sort of flurry of work looking at like examining questions like, you know, how do you support your child's blackness as an all white, like if you're an all white family in the middle of an all white neighborhood, like. Right. You know, are you doing your child a disservice if you adopt a black, white child? Um, and if you're going to sustain their racial identity, what should you be doing? Right. So it's really fascinating work there. And so the, but neither is really what multiracial families face. Like in my multiracial family, you know, I am a white mother. My husband's black. Like my children have a black family that they're close to. Um and so it's not like a transracial adoption at all. Mm -hmm. um, but there's still this question of like, of parenting a child across racial lines. And I think this comes up in at least sort of two ways. So one is like specifically talking to your children about race mm -hmm. and doing it as a white person. As a white person, I ought to take um I need to sort of take an take an epistemic backseat to sort of cede territory to others who have some experience with what it's like to be a person of color. But at the same time, I'm my child's mother. And so I ought to take a front seat because I know my child really well. My child looks to me for guidance. It's proper right. that I provide that guidance. And so there's tension. And I started thinking about this issue because I was part of a Facebook group of um, women in academia who are mothers. And there was all this, like, there were a lot of posts saying that, you know, white women should not be talking about race at all. And they were mostly retracted at white mothers of white children saying like, you need to like, read to your child from books written by people of color, or you should show them YouTube videos by people of color, which is seemed right, but also seemed to really miss what it meant for me at in a family with a child who was black, who was going to need more support around race and might need right. the sense that her mom was helping her. It seemed to seemed to me to miss my intersectional identity as both. Yes, I'm doing it as a white person, but I'm also doing it as a parent and both being white and being a parent are both 
important parts of my identity. And so right. what I ought to say about race has to be shaped not just by my whiteness, which might say to say less, but also by my motherhood, which says I should say more. And so that I thought was, I wanted to sort of explore that intersectional, that question of how to properly talk about race when one part of your identity says to say less, but another right. part of your identity demands more. So that's one part. And then the other thing I've been thinking about in this is like, um, like I have a daughter and thinking about her growing up as a multiracial and black teenager and a multiracial and black woman. Like, like when you read literature by black women about black mothering, they talk a lot about teaching their children, their daughters, how to be proud black women. <laughs> and right. I want to teach right. my daughter how to be a proud black woman too, right? Like, yes. um, and can I do that as a white person? If she's going to learn how to be a woman in the world, she's going to learn how to be a black woman, right? Or a multiracial woman. She, like, I think that our our gender identities take different forms based on our race. As a parent, I need to, and as the mother in particular, this is something her father can't do. Maybe I have a role to sort of demonstrate, I won't say teach, but to like lead my child or direct my child in developing her sense of her femininity. And if I want her to have opportunity to explore Black femininity, I think that's an area that I also want to understand, like, how do white women allow their children who may also be black <laughs> to develop as black women? Um, right. Or maybe yeah. we don't, maybe we just, maybe that's what teenage, maybe that's what teenage slumber parties are for, right? It's possible I'll decide that like, you know, at the end of this, that, that my role is much smaller. So, so those are the kinds of dynamics within the family and so the maternal dynamics that I want to try to figure out next. And at a larger level, I think you can sort of see this thread of like, you know, the, the larger issue there is the tension between being a maternal figure and being a white figure um, and right. then having a ch child who's black and trying to triangulate those three. Yeah, uh, I think I'm thinking that's about. Incredibly relevant uh, topic. Those are both incredibly relevant topics, and I feel like they're the conversations that that need to be had, and uh, especially from interracial families. And uh, those dynamics, you know, are very, very real. And um, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing your experience and also the topics that you're looking forward to diving into. Thank you so much for coming on today. This has been like this is been an incredible exploration of so many topics and conversations that don't have answers and I feel like need will forever be explored. And yeah, thank you for contributing to the conversation and to the podcast. Thanks, Noah. I really enjoyed it. The In-Between Project is recorded in Miami, Florida and Santiago, Chile. Produced and edited by me, Noah Richard. Music is composed by Diego Richard. The In-Between Project is a podcast made for the nonprofit organization Humanity in Action. Check out more from The In-Between Project at our Instagram, link down below in the transcript, or send me a message to my Instagram or email, also linked down below.